When I was, uh, I think, in the third grade, our family went on a trip uh, to Ontario, and we drove through Quebec, and me and my siblings, well, me and my sister, we were in French immersion at the time, and so we knew more French than the rest of my family did, so my parents trusted us to order food when we pulled into a KFC outside Montreal uh, late one evening. The problem is, is at that stage, my French was more like, here's a bunch of stock phrases that I know, like how to use the bathroom. It had more to do with like learning French grammar and school stuff than like the everyday language of ordering food at KFC. I supersized everything. (laughs) I thought the word for supersize was the same word as combo. And so you can just say combo. Like, I could, I could have spoken English, let's be honest, and they would have taken my order. But thinking that, you know, I could do it in French, I accidentally supersized everything. I remember the look on my dad's face when he came out of the bathroom at the KFC up to the counter and seeing these giant uh, cups of, of Pepsi that I had ordered. We ended up washing the windshield, I think, of our car with Pepsi uh, that night. But I think this is sometimes how it can be when we learn new languages, right? We, we learn a bunch of stock phrases, right? If maybe we're going, you know, somewhere down south, you know, Dominican or something on a holiday, and we learn a bunch of, like, Spanish phrases of, like, where is the pool? Like, I would like to place my order. Like, those kind of things. We learn these stock phrases. We're not necessarily fluent in the language. We're starting a series this morning called Atonement. And and my heart with this series is that we would learn about the cross of Jesus Christ and what happened on the cross, not in a way where we just have all these like stock phrases that we use, but that we can understand it in depth and from all these different kinds of angles so that we become fluent in the language of the gospel. So that it just kind of rolls off our tongue. It's not just these stock phrases that we use, but we understand it so widely and deeply that it's just natural to us. It's, it's second nature. We use all these kinds of uh, you know, phrases, like Jesus died for our sins, right? And, and yes, that's true, but there's a lot of how and why behind that that when we start to understand those kinds of things, it makes it more real to us. It makes it hit home for us. It makes the gospel become something that's not just, oh, I checked the box and believe that a man 2,000 years died for me and there's something that has to do with my sins. But actually we see how it starts to affect all these different areas of our lives. So this series that we're walking into is called Atonement. Now, the first question that that some of you might be asking, what do we mean when we say atonement? So let me bring up a bit of a a definition for you here. Atonement, uh, one definition, is the means of reconciliation between God and people. It's actually like an old English word. It's the process by which two typically estranged parties are made at one with each other. So, Easy way to think of it, atonement at one meant It brings two estranged parties together. Now, Christians historically have believed that through the crucifixion 
and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, that atonement was made between God and humanity. There There was something that happened in that one man's death that changed the relationship between God and humanity. The how of all of that gets explained all kinds of different ways. So it's easy for us to say, uh, Jesus died for our sins. The how and the why behind all of that gets explained all kinds of different ways. Throughout the New Testament, even, there's different ways of explaining what it is that happened on the cross. And, and different traditions of the church, you know, whether you're, you're Protestant or Catholic or whether you're, you know, Reformed or Wesleyan or all these different groups have tended to emphasize different explanations of what happened on the cross. You know, some of us, we talk all about, you know, Jesus was punished in our place. Or some traditions talk more about how Jesus won a victory over death and the powers. These are different ways of explaining what happened on the cross. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at all of these together as a way of growing our fluency of what happened. It's not that one is right or wrong. It's more that this is a multifaceted way of seeing what happened on the cross. Let let me give you an analogy. When I knew that I wanted to marry Haley, uh, we were living in Sussex at the time, And so we would drive to St. John and I would like go into jewelry stores and try to like pick out an engagement ring. And I learned so much about like diamonds and jewelry and stuff during that time. I just like went all the way down the rabbit hole. And um, the the analogy is often used with the atonement is the analogy of a diamond. You think of like a, a big, bright, sparkling diamond. On the slide, a big, bright, sparkling diamond. Beautiful. And a, a, a well-cut diamond has uh, typically 58 facets, 58 different faces to it, angles that you could look at it. And the more facets that it has, the brighter the diamond appears. If a diamond was just like, you know, cut like a, a typical shape of the diamond that you think of, if it was like an ice cube, it's not going to be very bright because light's not reflected. It's not, it's not made bright that way. The fact that it has so many sides and ways you can look at it makes it brighter, the way light just glows out of it. The same thing for the atonement. If we only ever look at it from one angle, we don't see the full brightness of the picture of what it is. To be able to look from all these different vantage points of how the New Testament authors and people throughout church history have talked about what happened on the cross is going to make it more vibrant and real and beautiful to us. So we're going to look at one of these facets each week. This week, we're going to look at the cross through the lens of sacrifice. I want you to picture with me for a second. Jesus and his disciples in the first century walking down to the Jordan River. And over on the horizon, down by the river, Jesus' eccentric cousin John is baptizing people. He's the guy who dresses in camel hair, who eats bugs, who's like, he spent too much time isolated from the rest of humanity. And they're going down to see him, and this radical man is baptizing these people, trying to draw them close to God, and he sees Jesus coming, and he points out, and he shouts to him, look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. It says this in John 1.29. These are the words of John the Baptist explaining who Jesus is. But what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb? And what does it mean for a Lamb to take away the sin of the world? For that, we have to go way back to the Old Testament. We have to think kind of in the language and the worldview of ancient Israelites. That's part of the reason why I showed the, the video earlier on in the service, for us to kind of get a little bit in the headspace of, of what life was like for them. For the ancient Israelites and other civilizations in the ancient Near East, part of how they worshipped was through sacrifices and temples, where often animals were killed and blood was spilled as part of their, their worship. Now, though the Israelites did this alongside other cultures around them, the way they did it and the reason behind why they did it was very different from the surrounding nations and cultures to them. Let me read to you this passage from Leviticus 1. I should have this up on the slide here. God said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering to Bring as your offering an animal from either your herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, that was the temple before the temple was built of brick and stone, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Some translations say so that you will be acceptable before the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So part of the the regular ritual of worship for the Israelites was to take these animals, to to slaughter them, and then to either burn the the carcass on an altar to to kind of send it up to heaven, so to speak, as a way of, of atoning for their sin. And, and, and you can read throughout the book of Leviticus and parts of Exodus all these different kinds of sacrifices. There was burnt sacrifices where you, know, you would take the carcass and completely burn it up. There were sin and guilt offerings where you would, you, know, you would sacrifice the animal, but then the priests could go and they could eat the meat from the lamb or the cow or whatever it was. There were grain offerings where you would take the first and best bit of your harvest and bring it to God. There were all kinds of different festivals and feasts and different animals to use for different kinds of sacrifices, whether it was a a bull or a cow or a a goat or a lamb. If you couldn't afford those, you could bring doves. It It was a way of life. And sometimes we think of the temple of, of Israel as like, oh, this beautiful, pristine place. But if there's this many animals being slaughtered day after, like, it's a bloody spot. Like you imagine like the smell of this place. Like there, there's animals constantly being like burnt up and there's, there's, there's blood everywhere. Like it's, it's messy. It's messy. And I think seeing this picture of what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was like, it shows us that God doesn't wink at sin. Like, it shows us how seriously God takes it. That that if the outcome of sin is death, then then we see that get played out here. That that it's you or the lamb. 
There are two reasons, and, and they highlighted it in the video, why these animals were often sacrificed. One, for the forgiveness of sin. But secondly, to make people ceremonially clean. We talked about kind of the, the vandalism in that video, right? Of, of how our sin has these, these just like environmental effects. How it affects the relations around us. How it affects us. And that we need to actually be cleansed from that. In fact, you couldn't just like waltz into the temple. You would have to make a sacrifice to kind of purify yourself to even be able to be in there. If you were a priest serving at the altar, you had to make sacrifices for your sins before you could even make sacrifice for anyone else. Like you had to be cleansed in order to do that. God took sin seriously. So the question for us this morning, what does this have anything to do with Jesus? Well, imagine Jesus' disciples, these young Jewish men, after witnessing the death, this brutal crucifixion of their, their rabbi that they believed to be the Messiah of Israel, and then to witness his resurrection, and, and trying to like grapple with what does this mean? Like, what is this that's going on? This, this like unnecessarily violent, brutal death and resurrection. But you've grown up your whole life through this, this lens of, of bloodshed, of this unblemished male being offered as the perfect sacrifice to die for you? Imagine like Jesus' disciples their first time reading Leviticus after witnessing the death and resurrection. Like we find Leviticus a hard, rough read. Like if you're like doing the yearly Bible plan, like you've given up when you got to Leviticus. Like let's let's be honest. But imagine them like reading this for the first time after Jesus' death and resurrection. And all of a sudden, like it comes to life for you. Of all of this has been pointing forward to something greater. That all, all these animals whose blood was shed was this symbol of the one who would come to actually make sacrifice that lasts. That is greater than everything that had been going on. To see that what happened to Jesus isn't just this, oh, he was a martyr who died, but it has a grander purpose in God's great scheme of how he is reconciling the cosmos to himself. It's not just Israelites who come and bring sacrifices to the temple, but there's something about Jesus' death that was a sacrifice great enough for all of humanity before God. Imagine drawing the parallels. Like, Jesus, who is said to be sinless, like is the perfect, unblemished, spotless uh, lamb that is brought before. Imagine making the connections finally with Jesus' last supper where he says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. To draw those connections where it becomes real. So the authors of the New Testament, they start making sense of Jesus' resurrection through the lens of the Old Testament sacrifice system. They're familiar with it. They grew up around it, whether they lived in Jerusalem or whether they had to travel there several times a year to make sacrifices. And the author of the book of Hebrews in particular zeroes in on this. And he pits Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the truer and better and greater sacrifice than anything that happened throughout the hundreds of years in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14 say this. I have it up on the screen. 
says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean, so that you can come to the temple. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will it cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. The author of Hebrews, he, he dives deep in this. Hebrews is one of my favorite books. A couple years ago when we preached through it, like it, it, it caused some seismic shifts in my own theology and understanding. But he, he brings out two main points about Jesus' sacrifice. The, the first thing that he focuses on is that Jesus' sacrifice is the real thing that the law and the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. And really what he gets at is is those were really only a symbol or a shadow of what Jesus did. In a way that really what happened there was not effective. What happened with Jesus on the cross is actually what makes the difference. Let me me read with you Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 to 4. I love how straight up this is. Author of Hebrews says, The law and the sacrificial system is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, be repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers who have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So if... If the sacrificial system actually worked, why did you have to keep going year after year after year to make sacrifices? But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin, the author of Hebrews says. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he's saying here, for centuries, this has been what's going on. And really what it is, is we don't put our stock in it as the thing that forgives our sins. We use it as a reminder of how brutal sin is and that death needs to happen because of sin. It's impossible for that actually to change us and forgive us and transform us. They're only the symbol or the shadow of what was to come. Jesus' death is the true reality of what the sacrificial system was just a symbol of. And as we read Leviticus and parts of Exodus, when we see all these laws in the Old Testament, now we can read them through the lens of Christ and see this is how it's foreshadowing Him. This is how it's pointing to Jesus and how much greater hope we have in the Messiah who died for us than in an unblemished lamb offered on an altar. Jesus' death actually accomplishes what the sacrifices were symbol to Jesus' death provides forgiveness for our sin in the way that the Old Testament sacrifices weren't. Jesus' death cleanses us to be accepted before God in a way that is greater than just making it possible for us to walk around the temple in Jerusalem. He actually makes it possible for us to be in relationship with our Creator and to be near to Him. The second thing that the author of Hebrews focuses in on is that Jesus' sacrifice, unlike the sacrifices of the Old Testament, 
was only required once. In Hebrews 9, uh, 27 and 28, the author of Hebrews says this, But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There doesn't need to be an ongoing practice of sacrifices. In fact, Jesus prophesied during his lifetime that the temple would be destroyed. That there wouldn't be sacrifices offered in Jerusalem anymore. And within the lifetime of his disciples, the Romans come in, they pillage Jerusalem, the temples tore down, and it's never been rebuilt. There's never been sacrifices made in the temple in Jerusalem since Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, it means we don't kill animals. And that seems like maybe like a funny conclusion to draw. But most of us probably were not tempted to go and, and take an animal out of the field and, and sacrifice it at church. Like we have no space here for us to like slit the throats of goats, etc. That's different churches. That was a joke, sorry. But we have our own ways of offering continual sacrifices, so to speak, that maybe aren't so bloody. But sometimes we kind of fall into this rhythm of, well, you know, I can do whatever I want and, and I'll, I'll purposely go and, and not follow God's way. I'll, I'll just do my own way. But listen, I'll come to church and that's good. Like, my church going becomes a sacrifice of, oh, now I'm good with God because I showed up on Sunday. Or, or we'll do the same thing, but we'll say, oh, I'll you know, provide my sacrifice of like a financial offering. And well, you know, I'm doing what I want, but I gave X amount of money to the church. And so that's like my sacrifice and God receives that and I'm, I'm good now. We offer sacrifices in our own ways. In a way that points to us not relying on the cross of Christ, but in other means of sacrifice. It also means that our hope isn't in some kind of future reestablishment of the sacrificial system. So sometimes Christians can go down these weird rabbit holes of, well, in order for the end times to take place, we need to like, make sure that sacrifices start up in Jerusalem again. And, and there are even like, organizations that are investing millions of dollars in funds to at some point rebuild a, a literal temple in Jerusalem so that the sacrifices can restart. And the problem with that is, like, if you're a follower of Jesus and that's, like, your hope, you've lost the plot. Like, like that's, that's not what it's about. It's not, it's not about sacrifices restarting or that being our hope because the perfect sacrifice has already been made. The important thing for us is for us to see ourselves in response to Christ's sacrifice as being living sacrifices. Paul in, in Romans, he says this in Romans 
12, verse 1. It's, it's one of the, the kind of famous passages in Romans. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I think what God is saying through Paul here is, listen, I don't want your religious actions. I don't want all these sacrifices. I, I don't want you to, to be all showy and, and, and religious. What I want is you. What I want is in light of Christ laying down His life for you to say, alright God, I'm worse. Like, like take me as this offering to use. To follow the example of Christ who offered Himself as a sacrifice. For us to offer ourselves not as a sacrifice like to, to die, like, like we need to pay for our sin, but that's given over to God and say, my, my life is yours to use. You Use me how you want. I'm no longer mine. I'm yours. I'm giving myself over to you. You may think of the, the old hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. That I'm, I'm giving myself as a living sacrifice over to God. Not that in my dying, I'm something that God wants, but that my life might be something that is offered over to God, that how I live is an act of worship to God. We don't worship at a temple with sacrifices, but we worship by giving the entirety of our lives and our living over to God. And Romans says it is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This, this is like drawing on the language in the Old Testament of, of when the sacrifice was placed on the altar and it was burnt up. Or when incense was offered. It was like this, this smell that goes up to heaven that was said to be pleasing to God. Listen, we're not burning carcasses as a pleasing odor to God, but we are offering ourselves, and that is pleasing. It is a pleasing aroma to God. And so our call is to live our lives pleasing to God as an act of worship. To say, because Christ was sacrificed for me, I'll follow Christ's teaching as an offering to God, as an act of worship. Because Christ was sacrificed for me, I'll seek to transform my habits, not from the patterns of the world, but be renewed in my mind and offer myself in my thinking to God. Because Christ was sacrificed for me, I will act in worship through being generous with my talents and my time and my money because God has invited me to worship Him this way. Because Christ was sacrificed for me, I will offer the sacrifice of the uncomfortable of stepping out and speaking justice for the oppressed. I'll confidently share my story of faith or invite people to church so that, so that people can be welcomed in. So that Christ, who makes us pure to be in relationship with God, that can be spread out to as many people as would receive Him. Not because these acts of sacrifice or these, these good things that we do are what pays for our sin, but because the perfect sacrifice has already been made. We offer the sacrifice of our lives to God because Christ has been sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you endured man, something so brutal so brutal that, that I wouldn't have the bravery to face. 
Yet you faced it knowing that what you were doing in offering yourself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross would bring atonement, would bring reconciliation between God and humanity in a way even greater than we're able to understand, even greater than we're able to unpack in a half hour on a Sunday morning. Jesus, my prayer is as we dive into this, as we reflect on the cross, as we turn our gaze towards you and what you have done, that its reality would sink in deeper for us. That the the choice that we've made to follow you, that it it would deepen and become more rich. That we'd even be able to talk about it with more confidence so that others might understand what's been done on their behalf by the perfect sacrifice made. The Lamb who's come to take away the sin of the world. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Wait, stand the same.